This is Tax Update for Saturday, October the 8th, 2005. Tax Update is intended for tax professionals who are capable of doing their own independent tax research. This week we're going to look at a couple of things. Uh, before we get started, though, I wanted to point out, in case you haven't looked there, that last Friday the IRS released the proposed regulations under Section 409 Cap A for non-qualified deferred compensation. If you have a client who has such or you have a client who is employed by an entity and is participating in such a plan, these regulations may be important to you. The issue being the IRS has now extended the due date for certain changes to be made to such plans from December 31st, 2005 to December 31st, 2006. And the terms of the regulation will tell you those items that were changed primarily in the documentation area. However, it's important to note that one key deadline was not changed from the prior IRS announcement. If an employer, an employee wished to terminate the plan and not come under the new rules and pay out the entire plan immediately, that payout still must be made by December 31st, 2005. Most likely the IRS did not change that date because a number of employers have terminated their plans and gone the payout route already. And most likely the IRS was concerned that there would be many complaints by those who had already taken the distribution in 2005, that it was unfair to grant to 2006 the people who hadn't gotten around to it yet because they had to pay tax this year and didn't know they had the opportunity to spread it over two years. However, the basic documentation rules to get your continuing plan into shape essentially are being pushed back for the most part. If you have anybody with such a plan, please be sure to review these regulations at least once you finish up with your October 17th due date returns. This week, we're going to look primarily at a couple of cases, and the issue is going to be loans, and when is a loan not a loan, and when is a loan really a loan? And we had the tax court release a decision, actually two decisions, both on the same date. On October 5th of 2009, the tax court released its decision in the case of Carnes Prime and Fancy Food Limited versus Commissioner, and the case of Tamurian versus Commissioner. And both of these cases dealt primarily with a question of whether a transaction was truly a loan or rather should be taxable income to the, to the taxpayer in question. The interesting aside in this case is that the results are likely the opposite of what many, what many tax preparers and what many tax professionals would expect, given the fact patterns, at least the basic fact patterns in both cases. In one case, we had a taxpayer who had taken funds from his own closely held and controlled corporation and had taken those monies, which the IRS was attempting to treat as a dividend. In the second case, we had a taxpayer who was advanced funds by an unrelated entity, and the taxpayer in that case was attempting to claim that that was truly a loan and not representing income to the taxpayer that was being paid to them in order to get them to agree to a supply agreement. Let's take a look at the two cases. Let's start first with Tamurian versus Commissioner. That is the case of the individual who had a loan with his closely held corporation. 
Now, in this case, Tamurian had been advanced quite a bit of funds over the years. In fact, the the actual deficiencies that were assessed, which were mainly related to the loans, were well over half a million dollars in deficiency, plus significant penalties. And the IRS assertion had been that the amounts that had been advanced to this gentleman were, in fact, loans from his court were in fact dividends from his corporation and not as he had contended loans well the question becomes what happened well the court considered the issue and mr tamirian apparently had not actually signed notes uh, mr tamirian had a few other little issues involved and the irs had sort of decided that if they hadn't signed notes that therefore it must be a dividend that that was what was happening, and in fact, that's what was going on, and that the individual should pay tax on that. The tax court said we need to consider, based upon a case cited of Welch versus Commissioner, which was affirmed by the Ninth Circuit in 2000, TC Memo 1998-121, they quoted that case for a seven-factor test that we would use to determine if this was a loan or if this was a constructive dividend. The seven tests are whether the promise to repay is evidenced by a note or other instrument, whether interest was charged, whether a fixed schedule for repayments was established, whether collateral was given to secure payments, whether actual repayments have been made, whether the borrower had a reasonable prospect of repaying the loan, and whether the lender had sufficient funds to advance the loan, and whether the parties conducted themselves as if the transaction were a loan. The court considered the seven factors and came to its conclusion. Factor one, was there a note? Well, in this particular case, he did not execute a loan, a note with his corporation. Generally, not a good thing in a case like this. In fact, as the court note, it weighs in favor of a dividend if there is no note. This is somewhat important and wasn't good for our taxpayer in this case. Issue number two, was there interest paid? Well, actually, the taxpayer did make a payment of $48,344.76 in interest. Now, that worked, but the IRS pointed out that the individual CPA and the individual couldn't quite agree on how the interest was computed. Uh, they had different beliefs about all of these issues, and the IRS claimed that their contradictory testimony indicated that no interest was truly charged. However, the court found the taxpayer and the CPA to be credible on this point and decided that, in fact, there had been an intent to pay interest, and, in fact, interest had been paid on December 29th of 2000. So they actually had paid it, found that the interest fell in favor of the taxpayer the lack of a fixed schedule for repayment. Well, IRS wins one here. Mr. Demirian had no fixed schedule for repaying his note. In a case that's probably not terribly unusual for many closely held companies, it was an open note that was sitting out there, available to be called supposedly at any time, but there was no actual schedule or principal payments being made on this note, nor is any schedule to make such payments. Item four, what about collateral to secure repayment? This also was a win for the IRS. The court noted that there was no collateral pledge for this note. Again, 
in the real world with many small business clients, you'll probably find the officers do not pledge security or collateral to, to back up the note. In this particular case, that didn't happen. Number five, were actual repayments made? Now the taxpayer gets another win. In this case, the taxpayer did make a repayment of $400,000 against the note. Now, of course, the corporation had made advancements to the, in, to the taxpayer of over a million five. But on December, 20, on December 29, 2000, the taxpayer, in addition to that 48344 of interest, repaid $400,000 of principal against the note. The petitioner, as they note here, repayment slightly more than 25% of total disbursements was substantial and not merely nominal. That was important. Had the, had the taxpayer, in this case, merely paid $1,000 toward principal against a million five seventy, that probably wouldn't have been important to the court. But the court noted he repaid $400,000. That was substantial. Therefore, the court held that the petitioner had made repayments. That follows in favor of the taxpayer in this case. Did the taxpayer have a reasonable prospect of repaying the note? In this case, the court looked at the individual's level of income and basically came down and decided with the actual repayment and with the level of income that the taxpayer had been reporting, there was a reasonable prospect of repaying the disbursements. And that found in favor of being a loan. Number seven, did the parties treat the disbursements as a loan? In this case, the question came down to the credibility of the taxpayer. And the taxpayer testified that he believed interest would be charged and the disbursements were a loan. He actually repaid some of that. The minority shareholder of the company, and there was good news we had one of those in this case, indicated that he understood these were loans and he expected them to be repaid. So, for that reason, the court found it was treated by the parties as if it were a loan. Therefore, that falls in favor of the taxpayer. So, basically, the court came down and decided that three of the factors weighed in favor of it being constructive dividend. Uh, they did not find that those three factors were enough to carry the case. The court even took a somewhat realistic position here when they noted that in transactions between shareholders and closely held corporations, formalities are often not followed. They did not hold that totally against the taxpayer, even though the IRS agent who examined the taxpayer in this case appears to have found that very compelling. That's tough luck for the IRS from this standpoint. The court noted that the taxpayer acted in a manner consistent with the loan, and that was the reason why the court found in his favor. Let's consider the facts in this case because it's important. Some individuals, when looking at a case like this or reading the quick one-paragraph summary, will quickly decide this indicates that you can never have a dividend coming out of such a payment or that informal loans are fine. That's not what the case holds. In fact, it seems key that the exact fact that there was a substantial repayment and that that repayment included interest and that, in fact, there was a minority shareholder who could enforce the position all seemed to combine to help the individual in this case. The taxpayer was able to carry the point. 
What you should garner from this case, though, is to take a look at the seven-point test. And that gives you the roadmap for your client as to what they should do if they want to be able to solidly claim that the amounts they are receiving are not dividends but are, in fact, loans. Go over with your client and try to get as many of the seven on your side now, immediately, rather than allowing the client to end up flunking virtually every test. In essence, remember in this case, a key factor was the fact there were true repayments. So what that means is, if, if you can, let's try to cover the first point. A note or other instrument, very important. In fact, it appears from the way the IRS was arguing the case and the way the case probably was presented, had there been a note, there may never have gotten to court in this case, especially with the other factors. A existence of a note appears to have been, or the lack of existence of the note, appears to have been the key factor that got the agent going down the line of saying, this must be a dividend, you didn't have a note. Whether interest is charged, it's important to charge and pay the interest if you can. Paying interest is important. It indicates that they're treating it as a note. Ignoring the interest payments or just letting it kind of slide or adding it back to principal may very well be taken as an indication that, in fact, there is no real note here. This is just the amount the guy took, and it truly was a dividend. Basically, it's my money, and I don't plan to send it back. Was a fixed schedule for repayments established? If you can, get your client to actually start paying on an amortization schedule, or at least some fixed schedule of when the loan will be repaid. Doing so makes the document appear to be much more of a loan because loans from third parties tend to have repayment schedules. Again, the lack of that schedule was not fatal in this case, but the presence of it would have helped. The presence of it, since it would virtually have required a note, again, probably would have kept this case from coming to court. The fact the case went to court, frankly, is a significant loss for the client even when they win, as this client did 100%. Whether collateral was given. Ask your clients to give consideration to collateral. Now, when you do that, make sure they consult with legal counsel. There is a consequence of giving collateral to the company. There is a consequence that, in fact, if the stock of the company were to fall into other hands, that collateral might be taken in addition to what there is in the stock. Uh, that is a secured debt, again, and can be very much of a problem in certain cases that you have a secured debt where the person now in control of the corporation that may not be the client can now turn around and go against that debt. So be careful there. It could also help for a creditor of the client who can receive the note or take the note from the corporation and now has security on the note. So make sure they consult legal counsel. Taxes are not everything. But again, collateral is a good positive for the tax standpoint. Repayments are made. Important, probably crucial in this case, was a $400,000 repayment. You don't tend to repay those things that are dividends. Dividends don't get repaid. Notes do. Have the client make substantial, not just nominal, repayments. If the client never repays a note, it doesn't look good, and most likely had that 400000 payment not been made in this case, my suspicion is that the court would have found just the opposite. 
whether there was a reasonable prospect of repaying. This is a reality check. If the client has taken more funds out of the corporation than they ever could hope to reasonably repay, that looks like a dividend. It's not going to come back. Be careful. If your clients go overboard on taking money out as loans, be careful that in and of itself can become an indication that these are not loans. And conduct yourself as if the transactions were a loan. Make sure you treat it that way. Make sure all actions are consistent with that. Make sure there's no side arrangement or agreement or some idea that you just weren't going to worry about this. Treat it as a loan and your odds are much better you will get to keep to treat it as a loan for tax purposes. So in this case, even though the IRS was convinced that this could not be a loan, this looked like the textbook case of a dividend, and in fact most of us would have probably been concerned about this being a dividend in this case, that the IRS seemed to have a better shot of getting this one, the taxpayer prevailed. Let's consider the opposite case, though. The case where a loan from a third party was treated by the tax court as income to the taxpayer. Normally, you'd think, if we had a binding loan from a third party and a note, which Mr. Which Carnes Prime and Fancy Food had, that there'd be no question, we have a loan. And that's not income when you receive $1.5 million, as the company did, on a loan. But this is a case of substance over form. And the tax court took a look at the substance of what were paired transactions. Let's go over the basic fact in facts in Carnes. Carnes received an advance of $1.5 million from a major supplier. Immediately after receiving that advance, they executed a supply agreement where they committed to purchase a certain level of goods from the supplier. The note provided that so long as they met that requirement while repayments were due at about $250,000 a shot, as long as they met the requirements of the supply agreement, that payment would be forgiven, each one in order. So as long as they kept meeting the terms of the arrangement, they would not be forced to repay the loan. Now, the taxpayer argued that there was no guarantee they could meet those terms. And because there was no guarantee they could meet those terms, this should not be treated as a income to the taxpayer. They said the ability to keep those funds can depended wholly on a condition after that would take place after the loan had been made and that there was no guarantee or reasonable assurance they would make that payment. The court said, sorry, we don't believe it. Now, they weren't helped by the fact that the supplier testified at trial that they reasonably believed this company would make it and that, in fact, their expectation was that the note would not be repaid. As well, in this case, a bad fact turned out to be that the supply arrangement was independent. And the only thing that had to happen, they had to breach the supply arrangement agreement. And only if they breached the agreement did they have to repay or actually make the principal payments. So long as they stayed in compliance with their agreement, the court found, they would not need to repay. So basically, this was more of a penalty clause in case they breached a contract that they had agreed to purchase. 
And the court noted that because of that, they took the position this was currently income, that the taxpayer had the unfettered right to use the funds. Now, basically, the taxpayer had tried to argue that the $1.5 million advance created an unconditional obligation to repay, and essentially as well, that in fact, by having had that agreement to repay, in essence, they had a valid loan, and that they did not have complete dominion over the sum in question. And they argued from two cases to get there. Erickson Post Acquisition, Tax Court Memo 2003-218, they argued on the point that they had an unconditional obligation, only a condition subsequent gave right. Now, the court noted that the April 15, 1999 note appeared to support the agreement. But they also noted that the real substance of the bargain was that the separate supply agreement, the April 16, 1999 supply agreement, with respect to each period was really the controlling document. That said, the taxpayer basically did not have to repay so long, basically said the taxpayer had agreed to purchase X amount of goods. As long as the taxpayer met that obligation, they would never be forced to repay. So this was more of a penalty clause on the obligation rather than some sort of way they could earn their way out of this situation, but there was no assurance they'd do so. The fact the lender was not looking for repayment, and in fact, the supplier really didn't want to end up being repaid, they were hoping to move the supply through, didn't help the taxpayer in this case. So in that case, the court found that what we really had here was a supply agreement followed by a basically penalty clause that would be invoked. So they actually got the $1.5 million, and only if they breached the contract would they have to give any of it back. Now, the second case, they said, we did not have absolute dominion and control over these funds. And in that case, the court relied on a U the taxpayer relied on the U.S. Supreme Court case of Commissioner versus Indianapolis Power and Light, uh, 43 U.S. 203 and 210 from 1990, that basically held from that case, determining whether a taxpayer enjoys complete dominion over a given sum, the key is whether the taxpayer has some guarantee he will be allowed to keep the money. Now, they argued we had no guarantee we'd keep the money. We may very well have to pay it back because there's a number of reasons why we might not be able to execute or live up to that agreement. So we don't have complete control. The court said you misunderstood Indianapolis power and light. In that case, they talked about deposits that the utility company had received and which it would later need to repay, could need to repay to customers. The court pointed out in that case, the repayment issue was totally out of Indianapolis Power and Light's control. So long as the customer lived up to their obligation, Indianapolis Power and Light was under an unconditional obligation to repay that loan. In this case, so Indianapolis Power and Light could not, by their own actions, ensure that they would get to keep the money. However, in the case involved in Carnes, Carnes, so long as it performed as it was supposed to, had the right to keep the money. The lender, in this case, could not control or force Carnes to repay cash instead of the money unless Carnes defaulted on the agreement. So long as Carnes performed an issue that was under Carnes' control, Carnes would not have to repay. 
the court said that is a significant difference from the Indianapolis power situation. And for that reason, the court held that, in fact, we had here a piece of income, not a loan. Indianapolis power was not the relevant case to look at. What should we take from this? Well, this is another case of substance controls over form. Your clients have to be aware that merely papering over the situation won't solve it. In fact, perhaps one of the better things to look at when comparing this case with the previous one is, even though in the previous one they didn't paper it over, that was probably the main thing that put it at risk. Not papering the situation makes it easier for the IRS to prevail against you when they go to interpret. But the fact you did paper a situation does not guarantee that if the facts underlying it don't agree with what you papered over, that you'll be able to maintain that position on the return. For that reason, you have to take a look at reality. You cannot convert, as in this case, what was essentially a bonus that was being paid to enter into a supply agreement into a loan by doing the paperwork that says it's a loan. Rather, you have to look at the underlying agreement. We could not convert that bonus into a loan merely by papering it over. So again, in this case, important to take a look at the actual case and important to compare your client's situation in this case and compare and contrast the situation in Indianapolis Power and Light and try to determine which side you appear to fall closer to. This has been Tax Update for Saturday, October the 8th, 2005. Tax Update is intended for those who are able to independently research their own tax positions and is not intended for those who do not have access to such material or are not trained in such research. Please be sure to back up and take a look at uh, the positions discussed here before relying upon them for a position for a client. Tax update is can be freely copied and distributed so long as no fee is charged and no amount is charged for anything related to it, such as offering this as part of a continuing education program without the prior written permission of the author. But any other distribution is perfectly allowable and, in fact, encouraged. We encourage you to drop by the site at ezollers.libsyn.com and leave off your comments. Uh, I'll try to read those and respond to any that come up there. But if you have any comments on this case or other cases, please leave them there. This has been Tax Update.